Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do glorious things at a place called Freethink, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here joined by two mighty men of valor, you might say, glory. if they weren't if they weren't <laughs> such such horrible atheist monsters, if they were at all familiar with the truth, the light. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist truth? Well, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. that. Michael Moynihan of Vice There's News. A lot wrong with that. Matt Welch, who occasionally attends church, but is an actu- actually an apostate. Matt Welch, Reason Magazine, editor-at-large over there. Just, I mean, that's not even a real job, but it's fine. Gentlemen, yeah, I mean, seek, apostate. seek the truth. Yeah. Seek the truth. Run towards uh-huh. the light. Acknowledge the racism of Donald Trump. Come on. <laughs> When's the last time Can you still talk about that? I'm we have talking to. About we that. must. Oh, Some people have nothing else to talk about. But, you know, whatever. It's like that person who comes to the dinner party, and it's like you know you told the, that same story the last time you were here. Oh it's like I don't. It's, you got one note. So no, anyway, you know. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just talking about how boring you it all know. is. And I'm, so, I'm just. But it's less boring. Matt goes to church, though. That is true. I'm That's glad true. you revealed him to be. Yeah. To be um, a pious man. About I don't uh, go with your daughter nearly enough, though. That's the problem. So yeah, It was weird she started going with you, and I was like, are, are you grooming her? <laughs> <laughs> no. Damn it. What? <laughs> grooming has made it into the podcast. No, it's not, because everybody's being groomed all the time. I mean, you watch yeah. The Incredibles, grooming. You oh, go to Disneyland, grooming. Yeah, You yeah. read Chris Rufo's Twitter feed, grooming. Everything's yes. grooming. I don't even know what it means anymore. But actually, no, oh, I do know what it God. means, because it used to be like, you know, um, kind of cultivating a child to molest them. And uh, it seems to have been broadened. Like, it's like the version, their version of the word racism. It now means a lot of different things, and is a bit baggy in its definition. But, um, but so, no, I haven't followed that story at all. I just, every time I, I look... At um, a certain element of uh, the right on Twitter, they're very, very upset about Orlando um, mm-hmm. and Anaheim being the two capitals of <laughs> in America. Orlando. Epcot Center. Ich bin ein, ein groomer. groomer. <laughs> I mean, committed, the, committed the to idea the idea that they think that this is going to be the winning, this is going to be the ticket. We're oh, yeah. Finally I mean, tip the issue. <laughs> No, no, the election I think, by, I think these guys saying that are Mitt Romney... secret DNC agents. That is mm. what it is. I think, Absolutely true. I think they're secret you, DNC I mean, agents, and they want to steal defeat from the jaws of victory. There's no chance in hell that <laughs> Democrats can win in Congress this year. It's like all the internals are absolute wipeout, and they're looking for a way right now. Yeah. Well, the way to do it is to say that members of your own party love pedophiles. <laughs> Not even the other party. <laughs> Mitt Romney. Lisa Murkowski. Mitt Romney's a groomer Susan now. Susan Collins. <laughs> yes. Mitt the pedo Romney. Okay, groomer. Is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is unbelievable. He is the Roman Polanski of Mormons. <laughs> He's the Jimmy Savile of, of uh, Utah. It actually all makes sense now. It yeah. really does. Yeah. And it's, it's all the lead, coming together it's, now. It's the lead objection to senators who were once taken seriously by some people, I guess never me, but... Um, you know, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. Um, it's like, you know, 
We really have to oppose this Supreme Court nominee because, uh, you know, she's objectively pro uh, pedophilia and the, and the pedophiles are going to get out. Um, <laughs> yeah. She's just going to vote that way she again She just keeps again. letting them out of jail. She I can't do it. Because that's, that, that's what they do with the Supreme Court. It's yeah. just like, it's usually like, um, are you going to let the pedophile out of jail? <laughs> yes or no? She's like, uh-huh. And she's like, fuck yes. yeah. Like, we need the to worse do they that. are, the more jails yeah, I'm letting yeah. them out of. Yeah. I'm going to put them in jail just so I can let them out, just for a day, so I can show you how debased I am as a human. Oh, yeah, and of course, uh, Tom Cotton, who went one step further and said, you know, here's a hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> if she was at Nuremberg, she'd be defending the Nazis. I was like, I don't get that from that hearing, but all right, I see where you're going. I don't really see where you're going. But yeah, that was a that was a pretty good because other than that, other than the grandstanding of these losers, we just really didn't pay attention to that hearing, did we? No, it just no. didn't make much. It wasn't. No, it didn't. It didn't make much sense too. Yeah, Brett Kavanaugh was a different thing. Yeah, you got to get a keg stand and and yeah. some and some of the world's worst journalism in history. That can I got an Emmy from Brett Kavanaugh, by the way. Just oh, so you know, was it for that? It was for that show. Yeah. Hmm. So thank you, Brett Kavanaugh for being a disgusting moral <laughs> reprobate who gets people drunk in like 1950 and does uh, does horrible things to them apparently allegedly allegedly, allegedly. yeah so we didn't pay attention to that but but uh, yeah. so i think we should move on from it now. <laughs> it's over I, I do wonder though unless you're extremely online i'm not sure if you actually know about the groomer disney situation oh no i'd been kind of peripherally exposed to it and it wasn't until last week that i sat down and actually uh-huh. read about this controversy, which somehow involves DeSantis and the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, outrage about this bill amongst people on the left and particularly amongst various staffers at Disney who wanted the company to take a stance against this piece of legislation. And I should say explicitly that it is not actually called the Don't Say Gay bill. In fact, that phrase doesn't occur in the legislation, as DeSantis has suggested many times. This is a, a caricature of the legislation that is Can being used by its question? opponents to assail the bill, much like the whole ban CRT thing is kind of a caricature of something that is being used to yeah. assail a particular set of views that, that certain people don't like on the right. Honest question. Yeah. Because I haven't really followed this. Um, uh-huh. I followed it a bit. Um, yeah. The Disney thing, how did they get involved in this? Was it was it because people at Disney were suggesting that Disney, for reasons that are unknown to me, need to take a stand on this piece of legislation in Florida? Well, that, that is part of it, yes. But there there also seems to be, and again, I'm, I'm only paying so much attention to this controversy, enough so yeah. that I can, I can talk about it in a context like this, but I think it's completely stupid and I don't care. Um, so, yeah. so there we are. So let's spend 20 minutes talking about it. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but Disney, but Disney was under some pressure because some of the people who are responsible for creating their content at Pixar in this particular case have been trying to incorporate certain kinds of storylines into some of their projects for some time. And apparently the reportedly Disney has been reluctant to include uh, stories that involve same-sex attraction and there was apparently a scene that was supposed to be in Lightyear which is a prequel to the Toy Story movies Buzz Lightyear being one of the main characters in the Toy Story films um, very successful franchise I'm not sure if that's Tim Allen who would be doing animated man-on-man toy-on-toy he's a very conservative chap too yeah I don't know what's being planned there but in either case this scene was not going to make the cut for whatever reason it's not clear whether or not they, this was taken out because they just thought, look, we don't need that kind of drama. The CCP will be unhappy 
if there are, yeah. if this appears in the film, um, or if they thought, you know, this doesn't really advance the narrative, and I just don't think this is great for the story. And yeah, hey, it's weird if the first version know. of uh, Toy Story is like a animated version of Cruising. <laughs> 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 but all right, if you want to make it that, that's cool. I'm fine. Well, I mean, know. Cruising is a good movie. Cruising, great movie. It's a good great movie. movie. It's a very strong film. Very strong film uh, and was accused of homophobia at the time by yes, uh, it was. By gay rights activists. So yeah, so maybe that's what they should be doing: saying <laughs> <a> homophobic <laughs> '70s leather movie starring a bunch of toys. God, how things have changed. Um, <laughs> a toy and chaps. I could see that actually. Yeah. <laughs> Buzz's yeah. Buzz's one true love. He broke his heart. Um, so at any rate, that was that was being removed from the film, or at least wouldn't be in the film. And then there was this massive walkout, and Disney did an about face and decided to include this scene in the film. And this sparked the ire of various activists on the right who are participants in the culture war, um, passionate, um, proud, uh, boastful participants in the culture war. They, they're going to harm Disney by, by, by degrading its brand, um, labeling it uh, a company that is, uh, I guess, protecting um, like child rapists. Um, and I love they always take it that far. They can't just say, I don't like this scene in the movie. It's like, you are a den of rapists, (laughs) children, not even just normal, like children. But by the way, can these people, I don't know how far their knowledge goes back because, you know, they just get on Twitter and say, you know, my, and they stay, they, they very plainly state their goals, right? I'm going to destroy Disney. That was the tweet that I saw. We're going to just take it offline. This storied company that you will, of course, through tweeting and a couple of conference appearances destroy. But you realize that they have been a target of these types of groups, particularly the Brent Bozell groups, like Parents Research Council and things like that, for decades. And who was going after Disney before that? It was the left. Yes. Entirely. Because in Southern California, especially the Walt Disney Land uh, Kingdom, there they were the like a, a biggest player in Orange County right wing politics. They were seen as anti-labor. Uh, you couldn't no, nobody working there could have a tattoo or an earring or yeah. grow their hair past a certain level. They were fascists. Is what, and they had the union issues with their animators, too. And that's that was there was a, a story. And I don't know if this is true. Someone can check this, that the uh, that famous rumor idea that Walt Disney was pro Nazi came from communist unions that were mad about union organizing and they had spread, they had spread this, um, this rumor. I don't know if any of that's true, but it's been, it's been said, uh, that that was the genesis of that, of that rumor, which uh, made, makes it into a Simpsons episode too, by the way. I once spent a dinner at a guy who was an animator for, uh, Disney corporation, but it's mostly for uh, TV, uh, and stuff. But yeah, you know, it was like the one chance to be with an animator and you have to ask the yeah, question. Slash like, child molester, but yeah. Uh, are you, are you, uh, <laughs> pedo? Uh, but, uh, it was, um, have they been putting in secret, have the animators who are all, you know, serious drug addicts and stuff, um, are they putting in secret stuff all the time or trying to, and it's just like, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. every movie, <laughs> every TV show, you're trying to sneak through as many references, like it speeds past you. You don't see it, but there's just a dick or something yeah, over yeah. there. Like they've been doing it's, that it's the forever. Word, it's the word sex in the air, mm-hmm. fell out in the dust in Lion King. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's in there. I've yeah. seen it. Yeah, it's in I've there. I've seen it. Then they changed it, though. You've gotten too close to the story, it uh, sounds like. Yeah. You know? That movie was very important to me as a young person. It also, it also, I mean, 
it, it turned me in trans. Um, and then I, I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> it was nine. It was, a, it was a weird time for me. Yeah. Um, it was a weird couple of months anyways. I'm just saying. They got you. <laughs> I lived my truth. Scar was one of the better gay villains, though. We, we can all admit that. Was he gay? Oh, come on. No. Is that right? Oh, watch it again. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. So I'm texting Andrew Sullivan right now. I'm trying to see if he's, <laughs> he's aware of this. He's my... He's in my clearinghouse for all these questions. He's like, yeah, to totally gay, Scar, very, Balls. very gay. Well, yeah. He just had a British accent. He wasn't, he wasn't gay. He just had a British accent, which is kind of the same, but not, not I mean, exactly. again, that's the, Andrew that's Sullivan. That's, yeah. that's, exactly. I mean, that's, that's my point of reference for all of these things, actually. Yeah. Um, but, I but know it's not one as gay though, person, and he's It's British. not as though Disney has been you know, a, a party to like the DEI like culture wars. I mean, they, they have... They have been somewhat active in these things. They've been uh, a subject of some of Rufo's stories in the past when he's doing his expose on companies that are are doing these uh, ridiculous diversity trainings. Um, and I, I am I am increasingly of the opinion that most of this stuff it may be bad, but it's also pointless and stupid. And the important thing to do is to not overreact to it. Um, <laughs> The comfortable ground should be our weird ideas being rammed down the throats. Sorry for the language of uh, of kids <laughs> at an early age, ideologically. <laughs> That's what sexual... you want, isn't it, Matt Welch? That's disgusting. Just, sorry, deplorable. Sorry. You should, can you just stop yeah, now? Can we move works. on? I was to saw a lot of animation. Let's talk about your... something uplifting, like massacres in Ukraine. I mean, yeah, come on. Yeah. Come on. Change Come the on, subject. Man. Go. Go. <laughs> Come on. Come on, no, I want to hear go, more go, about go, the kids, no. Matt. Tell me about the kids. kids. No, but like <laughs> if you're a parent and your kids being taught weird things when they're five, um, yeah. it's it's normal to say, hmm, um, I wonder if we should do some activism or change the rules or have some transparency and that kind of stuff. And that can be a persuasive political argument or, uh, or an activist argument mm -hmm. that people want to have. And instead, <laughs> we're going to turn 50% of Disney's customers against Disney. Yeah. Because that's going to work. And we're going to worry about what a corporation does internally with its artistic choices and vague political sympathies. Like, no one cares about any of that. And you're not going to get any sympathy. And it leads to what exactly? It leads to the word groomer being used in such a way. Deliberately, a lot of people are making this point. They're like, see, that's what the left did with the word racist, a word that they were just threw around casually and had the, the power and the potency to uh, wreck people's lives who were accused of it. So now they get a taste of their own medicine. No, that's, bad. that's not how you respond that's to not that. How you do it. Mm -hmm. The no, way you respond not. to it is when the first thing happened, you say that's bad. Human beings shouldn't act like that in the world. In fact, I am not going to act like that in the world six months from now when someone makes me mad or when I want a shortcut to get something done. Um, instead, that's where we are. We have this fucking troll culture, not just in activism, but in journalism and in everythingism, um, where people just want to do this. And then when those of us say that's creepy, that's stupid, that's wrong, you're collectively demonizing people. They're like, why don't you want to fight? Um, and that's where we're at right now. I mean, the right understood a while ago, it took it took uh, Roger Ailes to actually teach them this, that when it came to news and media, rather than complaining and trying to get people to boycott things, they could create their own and be successful at it. That is something the right has never been able to do with entertainment. 
So rather than actually creating counter-programming that they think is more acceptable, um, which they don't have the capacity to do um, for, for a variety of reasons, they instead say, well, let's destroy this rather than let's compete against it and, you know, make our own films. You have versions of that, but those are usually religious, like the Veggie Tales thing, which was Can like say, very big for a Kirk, long time. Kirk Cameron erasure here. Kirk Cameron, that. right? Yeah. You know, who's like... Uh, did all, yeah. It was, did he do the Left Behind ones? Oh, yeah. Is he in that? Oh, okay. Yeah. I just remember one where he was like a religious firefighter. Great. It was like, it was like backdraft, but like religious. Also gay. (laughs) If I hear back, I just think Brokeback Mountain. He found found true love, but he had to resist. Yeah, that was, yeah, exactly. It was like a homophobic version of backdraft. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, I have these feelings, but I need to go to camp and get rid of them. Is the best best summer ever. Yeah. Well, he pitched it to me and I was like, I'm listening. (laughs) Keep going. At some point, I was like, I don't know, I don't know about this. My my, my counter programming for Disney, where Buzz Light Buzz Lightyear's uh, you know runs a, a, a gay conversion camp or something in New Jersey. Um, would they like that? That'd be better, right? Be I, better I imagine one. they wouldn't make that film either, which is kind yeah. of which is kind of the point. You know, I I can understand why a company might be interested in making like mainstream content and might want to avoid political lightning rods yeah, and things no, I mean, that are at the forefront yeah. of political debate. That said, it, it does seem important to me. And, and we haven't talked much about the, the don't say gay bill, but this week I saw a post making the rounds on Twitter of a teacher who taught fifth graders or something like that. And he was very excited about the fact that he had just had a conversation with his students about the fact that he was gay. Like the students asked if he was gay. And one of the students apparently said to him, per him, in this, this TikTok video that he made, um, <clears throat> my mom said that she thinks you're gay because of the sound of your voice. <laughs> um, and he, and he like, you it's know, kind of took that, was your five year took old? that in stride. Um, well, no, fifth graders. Fifth, fifth graders. Oh, fifth graders. Yeah. yeah they a little know. older than five. So your it, teacher it, sounds really gay. <laughs> you should go tell him that. <laughs> what? You should listen to him. Yeah. Wow. Watch video. But but no. apparently that didn't that didn't insult him. <laughs> it did it not insult him. It doesn't take a genius. <laughs> he said, "Just why don't you take?" As he said in the in the video, "Why don't you take a look around the room? I mean, look at the the flags and stuff all over the place." He said um, that the flags. No, no, no. So, no something said, like that. Yeah. He said, "Look around the room, and you can see uh, sympathies and interests." I yeah, mean, but he had like, like he a, said a he alluded to the fact like, that there were like pride what flags and things like that in the room. That's what I'm saying. Like, I thought that was an ex-Soviet republic. I'm <laughs> fifth grade. How the hell do I know? <laughs> but he said, but he said he had a healthy conversation with the kids. And the reality is that I don't think it's weird for children to know personal things about their teachers. I think it's weird for children to talk about the sex lives of their teachers. But if you're married to a man, you have a family. You and your husband have kids. It would be weird if you were disallowed to share that sort of detail about yourself, about your personal life with students, unless there was a blanket prohibition on sharing details of your personal life with any student at any time, which would actually be quite weird. What is the the idea here, though, that if somebody says that this is my home situation... If asked by by a student in this right. in the case that you're talking about, right? Um, rather than like proselytizing about these things, if asked, that kids are going to be like at fifth grade, like, huh, huh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, apparently, maybe I'll is, try that's that. Precisely I mean, what they think. Yeah, I mean, I had a Sikh, I had a Sikh teacher in third or fourth grade. I didn't join up. 
That yeah. just didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if we talked about their religion at any great length. I suspect it's the sort of thing that could have come up in class in some way, shape, or form. Because things about children's personal lives and the personal lives of the people who are instructing them <laughs> tend to come up in settings like this, as do things about the other students who are in the classroom. Do parents really think, or perhaps the crafters of this legislation and the people advocating for them, that the teachers themselves and their personal lives are more important and influential to these students than their ongoing interaction with their classmates on mm -hmm. a daily basis. The entire thing is unbelievably misguided and naive. Also, I'm, do you not trust your kids in the sense that, you know, well, yeah, my, my <laughs> daughter said to me the other day, I told Matt about this. Uh, she said, you know, amongst kids that are older than her, it is like trendy to be like bisexual or lesbian. And, and she, she didn't, she didn't say gay. She was talking about the girls and she's like, you know, that's trendy to be bisexual or lesbian. And she kind of like laughed, like rolled her eyes. Like, I mean, it's so ridiculous that these people think that this is like something to make a trend of. Um, and she's 11. And the reason she says things like that is because she's not a fucking moron. You know, I'm sorry that your kid is stupid. And if your kid sees something like that, they, their brain short wires and they say, I don't understand. Make a bit of legislation so it stops. Like, what is the fucking problem? If someone is in front of you saying that this is my political program and this is way, the way you should think about these things that exist in the world and you're going to confront at some point. That's bad, right? And I think that most people would think that was bad. And if there's a TikTok video of some teacher you know, teaching in a kind of radical way about these issues to kids who just don't need at that age to find out about the details and the political, um, you know, the political programs or the political positions surrounding them or bills in Congress or in state legislatures about the, about your um, what would you, what, what people used to call your lifestyle. Um, but if it's just, you know, in a casual way, because my daughter has friends in her class who are the products of same-sex marriages. And it's never crossed her mind. You know, we just know the parents and that's not an issue. But what would you do in that point? You know, would you, would you not allow them to be in the school? Would you try to keep them out so your kid wouldn't have to confront the fact that the other kid in the school has, you know, two mothers or two fathers or something like that? I mean, they're going to have to confront these things in due time. And I don't understand why a teacher talking about it when it is requested of him, is something demanding of a particular bit of a leg legislation. I think what... Because conservatives used to like less government involvement in things until it comes to things like this, where they're saying, please get, get super involved. I think a couple of issues that are involved are that there is the suspicion among uh, people who are supporting or crafting this legislation that it's the Columbia Teachers College just trying to you know, fire hose their ideology and their pretty radical notions compared to where we were 10 years ago about gender in particular and race and some other things. Um, and so you take anything that you have around. I got a thick, you know, book about Europe. I'm going to block the fire hose stream. And again, with my analogy, it's not good today. Um, but like you take anything, you take anything to make it stop. You don't really think about it, today. but also it, it's I'm now supporting this legislation. Just <laughs> incoherent. Put the fire hose on Welch once and for all. Um, no, but also um, it speaks to how difficult it is to uh, treat this issue with 
you know, populist legislation, let alone or just legislation itself. Like, how are you going to craft a thing to be against, to make it more narrow, critical race theory? Okay, so you can't use the phrase. You can't teach something that's informed by it. Are you do you have like a set of books that you can draw from? These are good. These are not good. Like it really starts to break down. It's hard to write a good law. And that's why some of these laws are kind of garbage, as Camille pointed out in his op-ed and uh, with David French and, and everybody else. Like the, the those details matter. And when you just have this, um, uh, I don't want to say totally panicked, but just like all in a rush uh, type of, of, of effort to try to make the thing stop, you're going to see a lot of bad writing. And some of that bad writing is going to get to the place where it's going to constrain the ability of teachers to have a normal conversation. And that's ridiculous. That shouldn't happen. There's a lot of debate over that, particularly in Florida, where people are saying that's not how it's going to be interpreted or, hey, you know, even if it's vague, we'll, it'll be litigated pretty soon, and then it'll we'll figure out the case law afterwards. Like suddenly, um, but aren't the but because of that exactly what you're saying about it? I mean, aren't these bits of legislation in search of a problem rather than you know address? I mean, if there were really egregious versions of this, uh, I would hear of it. I imagine, and I would probably be on the same side as these people. I mean, I don't want you know kind of some very particular radical ideology that is the product of Columbia Teachers College and that something that maybe 10 years ago was considered so daffy that people wouldn't even teach it at Columbus Te- Columbia Teachers College. Now it's become sort of curiously mainstream. Have, but if that visited, happens... Have you visited Levia School? Uh, <laughs> I, no, I, it's it's very hard to get to Cuba during the week uh, for the sugarcane cutting. Um, <laughs> no, it's... You know, look, when that stuff happens... It can happen in an environment like a, a, a sort of New York City private school in which all of the parents are on board with this, which is one thing, right? That's, you know, where, so when you talk about the stuff happening in very elite private schools, it tends to happen with the consent of the people who are sending their kids there, you know, voluntarily and actually at, at great expense. And sometimes it gets too far and you have, you have the things like you had when Barry Weiss did a lot of the reporting about this at Dalton in the cathedral school and other places when it gets a little higher towards like high school. And then the put, when you push back on this stuff as a student, you actually get punished or you mm-hmm. get, th- this is not recommended that you push back on it. That's a different thing. Agreed. But completely. when you have these things for young people and I hear all these kind of, you know, like people, there's knees knocking and they're getting sweaty about it. It's going to happen to my kids. But I don't, I don't hear a ton of examples of it because I think that when these examples happen, I am not the person who says, yeah, that's totally fine. I mean, oftentimes I think this stuff is totally batty too, but can one not deal with that, particularly in a public school, by pressuring the school, publicizing it? I've said this in the past. Mm-hmm. Do you need the strong arm of the law to come in and of the state to come in and, and write something? They're usually in such vague language that it can actually pull everything up in that kind of, you know, net behind the shrimp boat, like you're pulling everything up from the sea and saying it's all bad. And then you, you toss it back if it's fine. Like, that's just I don't think that's a great way of doing it. And the reason it, that actually doesn't ultimately matter, because it's not about that. I mean, you know, I don't think these people are, are really worried about the kids of Florida. I think there's a larger issue here. And this is obviously the larger cultural war, war issue. In the way it's framed and the way it's spoken about by so many of these activists are, you know, call everything this and we'll get these bits of legislation on the table. Right. You know, we, we will run a kind of scare campaign 
against this stuff. And therefore we will further our goal. It doesn't seem to be the most honest way of, of, uh, achieving your, your ends, but you know, that's just me. Yeah. Well, plenty of other stuff happening in the world today. Elon Musk has apparently taken over Twitter and has decided that Twitter should be a cesspool filled with misinformation. Um, mm-hmm. or at least that's what I'm led to believe based on yes. some of the headlines that I've seen. Um, the situation in Ukraine continues to evolve on the Patreon, which we just recorded last night, which should be out now. And you probably have a chance to listen to it because you, you're the good sort of person who pays for the additional content, but also consumes the free content and you appreciate what we do. And as a result, you support us at Patreon and you will be joining us over at Substack where we mm-hmm. are headed. Um, because I, I, we are, I'll give you a little enticement. A little enticement to subscribe. If you're mm-hmm. one of those people that I saw the other night who said they love the podcast but didn't subscribe, on the paying one that you don't subscribe to, I really vigorously denounced you. So if <laughs> yeah. you want to find <laughs> out. Name. Yeah, yeah. By name. Go, yes. go check that out. Yeah. Go yeah, yeah. check that out. Even if you <laughs> haven't met him. Cheapskates. <laughs> Gotta pay to be insulted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, the situation in Ukraine continuing to get uh, a bit a bit worse. There are reports of mass slaughter being carried out by the Russians, new rounds of sanctions, um, and calls for independent human rights investigations and criminal prosecutions. And uh, there are also some things on the domestic front. President Barack Obama visited the White House this week, I guess, celebrating what what is it? What the tenth or eleventh anniversary of the Affordable Care Act? also known as Obamacare, um, but it was hard not to read it as an opportunity for the Biden administration to bask in the glory of a still very popular political figure, someone who's respected as president of the United States and is believed to be in control of their mental faculties, unlike the current inhabitant of the White House, who's yeah. perhaps a little less popular. Um, and Barack Obama's How is the white guy there, less popular than the strange. black guy? Well, in this white supremacist society, of that's how white supremacy works. It is, isn't it? Sleight of hand. Yes, it is the David Copperfield of, <laughs> of, of ideology. It's a trick. It makes you th- yeah, it's, it's a, trick. a trick. It makes you think that America is not racist. Uh-huh. But it is. It is. Exactly. You have to know it. Yeah. Um, and I suspect there are some other things going on that we could talk about too. That's a lot, though. Yeah, the Musk one has been particularly interesting to see all of our friends in journalism express alarm that Elon Musk bought 9% of uh, Twitter and has been um, granted a seat on Twitter's board, mm-hmm. making him influential in the sense that he is privy to a lot of private information, negotiations, salaries, things like that. And he has said a number of times quite publicly that he errs on the side of more free speech because he's a normal human, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that he's a bit weird. But he's a normal in that sense. And that, for some reason, really frightens journalists <laughs> who are in 2021 on the side of less information and transparency because there could be some misinformation. It's 22? Yeah, yeah, we have oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Fuck, what happened? Yeah, it's still the beginning of the year. It's it's that weird period. I think this yeah. is the end of it, though. There's no real real excuse really, after April it, for I'm, making moves. I'm getting April, younger, though, but, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Benjamin's no, buttoning this shit. <laughs> going backwards. Um, yeah. Yeah, but these people are all like, you know, this is terrible. You know, what's going to happen? I sent you a clip from the Wall Street Journal podcast today in which uh, somebody was, uh, one of the Wall Street Journal's reporters was uh, fretting that it could become, uh, Twitter could become a cesspool of misogyny and misinformation, the mm-hmm. two misses uh, that uh, that could happen if it allows 
And by the way, they don't realize that they're talking about like, you know, high level figures because the regular racist misinformation merchants and misogynists still exist on Twitter. <laughs> they're still there. There's hundreds of millions <laughs> yeah. of people on Twitter and they can't actually do anything about it. Yeah. But they're talking about Donald Trump. They're talking about, you know, uh, the Alex Joneses of the world and people like that, because the world has been been um, rid of misinformation because Twitter, which, you know, nobody's on except for the people writing these stories, um, has banned them and that more bans are better. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk thinks the opposite of that. So he must be stopped. I mean, you know, Elon Musk, by the way, is... 20 years ago, let's make a little time machine. Now, Matt knows that I'm not so good at years, so let's just pretend that's sometime in the 90s. Um, <laughs> and if you go back in time and I presented this figure to you, people would say, this is a progressive dreamboat. The man who has done more than anything to, to try to wean us off of fossil fuels to try to get us to Mars and to give his private money to, to create, you know, this amazing, amazing um, company that uh, promotes space exploration in places that, that NASA didn't. NASA is not, you know, doing a lot of stuff these days um, and is actually working with SpaceX uh, on a lot of projects, too. And a man who is a warrior for free speech. Uh, you would think that that would be something that people would really appreciate on uh, on the progressive side of the aisle. Somehow, things have gone a bit odd where this is not a very progressive position to be in, to be the man who who wants to create, um, you know, a, a, a zero carbon future or something. And, uh, you know, he, but, but the thing is, he's rich and he has long political views. So in the game of rock, paper, scissors... You know, what covers it all, what the paper is here, is that he's rich and he's periodically said some things that people don't like um, about, you know, free speech, the uh, so-called cancel culture or whatever. And uh, that's enough to, to just, you know, nullify all of his achievements. And he goes on Joe amazing. Rogan and smokes yeah. fatties. And yeah. Which, again, 20 years ago, it would have been, that, you know, <laughs> a pretty good progressive point that the rich guy in the world is just pu publicly smoking weed um, would have been there's a great a phrase, blow for progressivism. There's a phrase that our friend uh, Jesse Single has used in the past, and I've always thought was terrible because I didn't understand it and it sounded dumb, uh, yeah. which is... Uh, <laughs> I think most of the stuff he says. I, I think it's, it's called <laughs> right, right side... Uh, bias or something, right side something or other. And mm -hmm. and uh, I figured it was like some, you know, discussion of, of norms or what is fancy social science crap that I'm not interested in. But uh, someone else was explaining this on Twitter in the context actually of Jesse being attacked absolutely brutally and falsely by Gawker today. Um, uh, the, the artist formerly known as Gawker still, the corpse still gets up and twitches uh, now and then and sort of twitched against uh, Jesse and just made shit up about him, like grossly mischaracterized uh, the big article that he wrote in, in The Atlantic a couple of years ago that people get mad at. The one that they keep on attacking him for. Yeah. Was... Uh, and and just, you know, said it, said things wrong. But the right side thing is is simply that people look at an issue or a controversy and say, are you on the right side? Mm hmm. And if you are not in their eyes, um, 
they will just figure out any kind of possible ideology just to be mad at the thing that you were involved with or did. And you see that with Elon Musk. At some point, Elon Musk became a wrong person. And so whatever he does, pretty much, uh, it's very rare that you find a highly political person who will say, you know what, I disagree with about half of what Elon Musk does. And the other half, I think, is pretty rad. And he's an interesting and conflicted, nuanced weirdo character in our culture. That's not a thing that you hear from journalists. Most journalists are talking publicly. Will, he's just on the wrong side. Jesse Single is such on the wrong side for people uh, who get very excited about his work on transitioning uh, uh, trans kids and the science and medicine behind it, that it doesn't matter that people are making shit up. Journalists, you're supposed to like journalism was supposed to like not, I don't know, make things up that aren't true. Um, but the people who do that kind of making it up and that aren't true, they don't really suffer all that much from it. You don't suffer nearly as much. Matt. You don't suffer nearly as much as the target of the actual misinformation. And I think that kind of helps explain a lot of the dumb controversies and also the inexplicable ones, because it is kind of inexplicable that a rich dude buys 9% of a flatlining social media company, Twitter, that is, you know, the province of increasingly aging journalists, um, for the most part. And, um, like, it doesn't really matter all of that much. But he's bad, and so, therefore, the bad thing is going to happen with the democracy and stuff. And mark my words, that talk is just going to absolutely accelerate over the next five months why? Because Democrats are facing, unless the Republicans decide to run against Mitt Romney's pedophilia, um, the Democrats are facing a wipeout. And there's a, a class of people who have convinced themselves that that will mean white supremacy finally won, that we're on the authoritarian road to being Vic, uh, a, a junior state of Viktor Orban's Hungary. Um, and it's all terrible. And so the only bulwarks that we have against it is to prevent the successful platforming of the wrong thinkers of the people who are not on the right side um, from having influence on uh, these social media companies or having access to it at all. This is just as a normal uh, way of that. A lot of people think even after all of the embarrassments like, you know, the New York Post being banned for a week from Twitter from publishing what turned out to be credible journalism about Hunter Biden's or laptop. Or we found right out, election. I, I tweeted this the other day, or we found out from that New York New York Magazine story uh, about the uh, Patrice Coolers, um, <laughs> the, uh, one of the mm. three um, dopes uh, that uh, <clears throat> ran or started Black Lives Matter and bought a $6 million house uh, as a safe space <laughs> for people. By the way, I can get you a safe space. It's cost like 12 grand. Like total, <laughs> like that's it. It's just 12 and no one knows where it is. It's in a cabin in the woods, really hard to find, super safe. Um, but it's not $6 million in like Bel Air or something. Um, but, you know, in that story, in that story from the New York Magazine, uh, the writer from New York Magazine said that uh, the initial New York Post story about these uh, uh, women, I think it was maybe more than one, from Black Lives Matter, or maybe it was just her buying was, multiple it her. properties. Yeah. It was just her in that case. buying multiple properties. Yeah. Um, it is. Uh, and it doesn't include the six million dollar home. That does the, not include the six million dollar home. No. Yeah. No. This is a just bunch a couple of million pieces dollars. of real yeah. estate. It may have been like a three million dollar real estate portfolio. It wasn't. It wasn't insane, but it's a lot for a, a social justice activist. And yeah. she was apparently yeah. trying to acquire more property at the time this this post was. Written. Yes. More than I have. I <laughs> buy quite a bit. Um, which is your real beef as a white man 
<laughs> it's the, yeah. That's the grievance here. That's the grievance. This black woman doing too well. <laughs> she doing too well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Patrice <laughs> got them homes. Could feel yeah, your I, status lessening by the second. And yeah, that's right. Hurt that's right. Well, that story um, is apparently you cannot share it on Facebook. Uh, the New York Post story, uh, right. much in the way that you couldn't uh, share the Hunter Biden stuff, is uh, so that was 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 pretty interesting. And you know, it's, it's, it's harassment. Well, it's funny because I, I I saw this thing today, and I think this is relevant to both the Musk conversation, you know, and this because it's it, it was the post um, from uh, Patrice Coolers. She -hmm. responded on um, Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read you a little bit of this uh, response. Yeah. This is pretty amazing. I'll just read you the first uh, couple of sentences because it's exactly what is wrong with the universe today. And Mm -hmm. you'll you'll key in on those words, too. Yesterday's Yesterday's article in New York Magazine is a despicable abuse of a platform. That's right. That's intended to provide truthful information to the public. That's what New York Magazine... Is, was, was created by executive fiat uh, to, to provide truthful information to the public. Journalism is supposed to, by the way, any sentence that says journalism is supposed to, it's just like, you know, shut your brain off because it's going to be ridiculous. Journalism is supposed to mitigate harm. What? And inform our communities. What? No, it is not. What? How can these people think this? Who the fuck teaches them this stuff? Mitigate the harm. fact that a reputable publication would allow a reporter with a proven and very public bias against me and other black leaders, the writers are racist, to write a piece (laughs) filled with misinformation, there's that word, innuendo, and incendiary opinions. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? It's disheartening. People are are critical of her. That's that's Yes, and unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Um, And then then she goes on to... uh, uh, say that they, they, the, it's not as nefarious as the headline uh, claims, and then it's just a bunch of stuff that makes literally no sense. Um, uh, what's happening to me in our movement is both racist and sexist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so New York Magazine is both racist and sexist. But either yeah. way, I just thought that was pretty interesting because this um, opening salvo here that... Uh, the, a publication like the New York Magazine is uh, supposed to provide truthful information to the public. That's what it's. That's what it's. Uh, it's an abuse of a platform, and that it uh, repu- a reputable publication would allow them to write this about a black woman with their incendiary opinions and the uh, the idea that journalism is supposed to mitigate harm. That's what it is. This is the bananas world that we live in now. That people actually believe that most things in society either exist or should exist to mitigate or prevent quote unquote harm. What right. harm is, is left to the person who believes they are being harmed, yes. which is a bad way she, of doing she gets it. gets to define it. That's exactly yes. right. <laughs> yes. the, harm, the harm is publishing things that are critical of me <laughs> and my, and my actions. And what's amazing about this piece in New York mag. And, and I really don't think the piece overstates things. Pretty careful, I mean, the piece actually. about the $6 million house. It's a continuation of a piece from earlier in the year about the fact that their finances are, are pretty murky, that there were activists who were, part of the Black Lives Matter network, but not part of the central organization that does most of the fundraising, 
who felt as though they weren't being supported financially. There were families of people who'd been killed by police violence whose names were being used as part of these fundraising drives. And there were serious questions about what was happening with the money and about the, the governance of these organizations. And as you just illuminated, Moynihan, they have this extraordinary cultural influence and political power. And there's no mention of Ben Shapiro's concern about Black Lives Matter in this article. It is all people who are generally in line with Black Lives Matter as an organization who have serious concerns about what's happening here and disagreements about the efficacy of the work being done. That's what's being illuminated in the story. And to think that they're in a position to get a major company like Facebook to essentially blacklist articles critical of people associated with the organization, that's, that's damning. And mm-hmm. to the extent that adding someone like Elon Musk to the board of Twitter makes it less likely that there would be kind of unanimity of thought about when it's appropriate to throw someone off of the platform or to censor articles that are critical of causes that might be popular amongst many other people in Silicon Valley. I think it's good to have a guy with fuck you money in the room. I think that can Mm -hmm. be enormously valuable Mm -hmm. for anyone who cares about actual diversity of thought um, represented on these platforms. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that the author of that article in New York Magazine is is not white. Um, so if, if it, it's we're in such a bizarre world that you can very aggressively call someone covering uh, your organization, and it's not just him, by the way. I mean, it's like Amazon Smile, and these things have just like have like delisted Black Lives Matter because of a lack of transparency of where the mm-hmm. money goes. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not just him alone, other people have been reporting on this. Um, but it's just kind of, a, a, you know, amazing that that is uh, the a line of attack you would take against a black journalist um, who I think self-identifies as far as I can tell as a black journalist. But, you know, even his tweet about the piece was, you know, a bit kind of, it's a very good piece. He did a very good job. It's very fair. But I kind of eye rolled this, his tweet about it, like how the Black Lives Matter uh, the story was one of the hardest I'd done. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. It's like no, it's not. It's just an it's just an activist organization. Yeah, and they're they're squandering just, money like a yeah. lot of activist organizations, yes. white, black. <laughs> you know, it's just common, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, like the head of the American Di- Diabetes Foundation, I think, makes like four million dollars. It's like that's not cool. You yeah. know, <laughs> this is like is not a place for you to make a ton of cash. But that you know that kind of response to it, even when you do that. There's no amount of throat clearing you can do that, that this stuff won't be, won't be targeted. But I can also see if, if he says in his piece, and this is back to Musk again, that the original story about that um, real estate portfolio is banned from being shared on Facebook because it is considered, I can't remember what, like, like threatening or something like that. But if that is true, I wonder if one can share the New York Magazine story on Facebook. And if you are somebody like Elon Musk, and if you are somebody who works at New York Magazine, edited the story, you know, that's not a place that has any real conservatives writing there. I mean, Andrew Sullivan worked there and they ran him out of town. I mean, literally ran him out of town. He was not welcome there because of his politics. So we know the political inclinations of the magazine. Would those people be okay? Or do they want somebody like Elon Musk on their side fighting for them if that story was banned from being shared on a major platform like Facebook and or Twitter? I suspect they would, uh, would say that that was wrong because mm-hmm. a previous version of that story, just because that story was written by the New York Post, 
which has a more conservative bent, obviously, it, then it's banned. You're not allowed to share it. It's, you know, and they, and according to the article in New York Magazine, uh, the kind of BLM structure, the, the higher-ups, uh, agitated for a lot of this stuff and mm-hmm. would, would agitate for having stories either squashed. Um, and he said that they, they try to dig up stuff on reporters, including himself. So um, it's an interesting story. It's worth reading. But I'm also interested in, in you know, something beyond that, less about what the story is about, but how organizations like this react to it and the tools at their disposal to actually have these stories um, buried or, you know, taken off of Facebook or try to intimidate the people writing them. I think if there was a different organization, would people be a little more concerned about this? But they're not so concerned about it. Apparently. That story was not even on the front the home the day it went, it was like a big story. I saw it a lot of places. I could I had to scroll pretty far down on the New York magazine homepage to find it. Oh really? Yeah. I'm a big uh, fan of nineteenth century old timey newspaper names. Um yeah. and I'm not gonna think of the best ones, but you know, like Courier Gazette type of names. Um yeah. which in the best case sort of speak to the prosaic agricultural concerns in the city back in the in the eighteen seventies or something. I think with the new kind of ethics and language that people use to describe and characterize and prioritize things about journalism. I'm looking forward to the, uh, the, uh, the harm mitigator or maybe the harm mitigant. <laughs> yeah. The St. Louis harm mitigator. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're trying. That's, that's fundamental. That is our job. That is amazing. Our that is job great, here is, is to mitigate is harm. To mitigate harm. So we're going to, no, it's actually to create discomfort. Actually, it's the opposite of that in a lot of ways is to make her uncomfortable because, you know, you are therefore responsible if you, if you point out a piece of information that is true, verifiably so, and somebody, you know, takes that information, processes it in a certain way and decides because they're mentally ill to make some sort of threat against her. It is therefore your fault. And this is a kind of a new thing. People tend to, in the past, understand that you, uh, that Jodie Foster was not responsible for what John Hinckley, who was the one that was obsessed with Jodie Foster, or was it yes. Mark David Chapman? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was John Hinckley. Mark but, David Chapman know, was John Lennon, so that's why I had to kill him. Yeah, but I thought it was maybe he was doing it to him. He was, somebody was doing something to impress Jodie Foster. I, I think, think it was Hinckley. Was, yeah. uh, Hinckley. Our, yeah. our, our great uh, troubadour. Right now, no. I pointed out before that you know I think it was when Hinckley got out of jail recently that when he read that Jodie Foster was a lesbian, he must have felt like the biggest idiot. (laughs) Man, that was bad. (laughs) Or maybe love wins. Yeah, (laughs) maybe the Columbia Teachers College got. I am going to try to impress Ellen DeGeneres. (laughs) Give me the gun. (laughs) <laughs> um but yeah anyway this 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 kind of harm reduction stuff and i i don't know if we're worried about misinformation i mean are we worried about the kind of you know misapplied knowledge of the media that people se- seem to think that it is something that exists uh to further uh kind of social justice goals or to protect people or to cuss it and coddle them i don't quite understand this and by the way a, a small kind of point that is kind of unrelated but i was watching brian stelter interview this horrible unfunny woman who claimed to be a comedian about louis ck because this is the most important thing because he won an award and a secret ballot so brian stelter uh, put his cape on in his uh his tight little superhero outfit and decided to uh, get to the bottom of why this 
this uh, victimizer was being uh, rewarded. The woman in the interview, because there's a certain thing when if it sounds close enough and it's about a bad person, it doesn't really have to be fact checked. She was talking about how he was publicly masturbating. And I was like, well, that's that's not true at all. And then something else in the same thing masturbating uh i don't know if it was the same uh segment against the, the against the will, the will. Uh, of these yeah. women which is also not true but people just let that stuff slide and it's like when you get into the world of quote-unquote misinformation you got to start evenly applying this stuff and saying you can't spout misinformation even though it speaks to quote-unquote a larger truth both of those are about. both of those are crimes that she's describing yeah and neither of them happened yeah and neither yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and so like yeah. and uh and the tagline was we have to fix. It's a broken system. A system that produces Louis C.K. winning a Grammy for Comedy Album of the Year is a is self-evidently a broken system. Yeah, these are people who don't, like us, believe in criminal justice reform. They believe in the opposite of that. He's been in the wilderness for five years. He's been kicked off of all these platforms. He's not been welcomed back in these platforms. He's doing it on his own. And to these people, it's not enough. He has to be punished forever. And in, in as long as, as we don't keep on punishing him, we are failing as a society. It's like, no, we're failing as a society because people like you are on TV. I want, I want to know how this squares with uh, a concept that I heard about for about seven uninterrupted droning minutes on NPR this morning. And that it's all the fad in public schools here and a lot of other places, which is restorative justice. Right. Restorative justice is a way to in a school setting to not go to the punishment first. But to go, uh, how do we restore the overall health of the community that this is part of? But let's maybe not get so much punishment involved. The, there's this incompatible, this notion, which, again, is very widespread. It's controversial as well, um, especially in New York. There's kind of a big backlash against it, uh, as well as in other places. But the same types of people who tend to be in favor of restorative justice would like to have a, a, a lifetime ban of Louis C.K. from polite society. And you're right. That's just fundamentally incoherent. Like if, if it's it's a right side bias again, he's in the wrong side um, yeah. and it's irritating to see him like it's it like it actually makes you mad to see him or to see a, you know, a Barry Weiss do something in public just sort of makes you mad. And you don't you're not exactly sure why, but she's just irritating. Um, so it doesn't matter if she's right about the subject. She's a mad making person. She's uh, <laughs> she's not yeah. mitigating my harm, or yeah. my self harm. The hardest thing to do as an adult, as a journalist, um, as you know, a commentator on things is to be consistent on these things. And it is your job to kind of check yourself and realize that maybe I'm I would hold somebody else to a different standard and we all do it, but we have to try not to do it in the sense that, you know, I see these people I, talking I about, I don't do that. I'm, I'm you perfect. never do that. Camille. I am perfect and fair. You never do that. Yeah. I mean, just think of some of the people you're seeing talking about the Bucha massacre in Ukraine saying, well, we don't really know. Uh, I, I, you know, this is probably some misinformation, blah, blah, blah. And imagine them in a situation where the retreating army was the United States army. And mm. it came up that there was a lot of people with their arms tied behind their back with bullet holes in their head. I'm not so sure they would be asking for some calm and relaxation. Just just let's let's really wait until we can get some more <laughs> proof on who the people who would possibly who could possibly have done this. The mm -hmm. guy with blood all over his hands in his face or the people coming in going, holy shit, what happened here? Maybe they did it. Hey, Moynihan, Maybe is, they're just so clever. Is so. Putin calling for an independent investigation? 
of these of these killings. <laughs> well, I there haven't was, heard. Is is anyone in Russia calling for that? There was a suggestion initially at mm-hmm. the UN, uh, the Russian representative said that, you know, we're going to present evidence that this was fake. And then that nothing ever happened with that. They just <laughs> they didn't say anything. Weirdly, they didn't say anything. Yeah. But uh, they said I, they had. I know Zelensky has suggested that there ought to be an investigation and there ought to be prosecution. And there should be. People should people should look into this. And there are journalists on the ground who are looking into this, who are yes. who are who are actually reporting on this stuff in real time. Um, yes. It is not merely laundering press releases from the government of Ukraine. Like we no, actually, no. There's a story in the BBC a that I tweeted. Of evidence. You have like the satellite photos that are coming yes. through. Um, the, the proliferation of evidence supporting the atrocious things that are happening on the ground yeah. there. And it should be added that all of this began because the Russians invaded Ukraine. Yes, those people would still be alive today. <laughs> like that's how it started. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that all of those people that are that are spinning uh, these atrocities um disgracefully and they should be they should be ashamed of themselves but they don't appear to have any capacity for shame that the those people would and they should point this out they should take a second to tweet one thing and say i don't know what happened if they want to say that fine but what i do know is that if the russian military had not invaded a sovereign country those people all all would still be alive every single one of them would still be alive I mean, I treated something of a, of a child, a 14-year-old child, 13, 14-year-old child, giving a horrible emotional testimony about a Russian soldier murdering, shooting and killing his father in front of him mm. and shooting him too. And the kid shows his bullet wounds in his leg and his, in his arm um, and shot, tried to shoot him in the head, but shot through his hoodie, apparently. Jesus. Um, and I guess that's just faked. I guess that that's not a real thing. I guess that you know, this kid is colluding with like the 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 World Economic Forum or something, uh, or George Soros to create these uh, disaster tales and these 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 bits of black propaganda. But there's so much evidence, and now we're on a different town uh, that has been liberated, and the stories that are coming out of there. But I just wait um, to see what happens in places like Mariupol, uh, which awful. has just been flattened to the ground. And if you mm-hmm. look at the footage. Um, I tweeted this too. There's a, the, the Ukrainians released a drone footage of the, of the town of Bucha. Um, and it's astonishing because uh, you see a, every apartment block, you know, nine story, 12 story apartment blocks either have holes blown in them um, or burned totally to the ground. Uh, you know, these are all, civ- this is civilian infrastructure and they've all been destroyed. I mean, the entire town, it's amazing to see in such a short, short period of time how, what what kind of damage can be done by this ruthless invading army and the fact that we are saying now that there is an argument that is made and people think they're incredibly clever when they're making it that the united states is prolonging this is hoping is not negotiate we are not a party to negotiate this people can we can we just get this through your fucking thick heads and realize that this is the ukrainians fight and what they decide they want to do after they have been invaded is what happens. The United States can suggest things, but we do not hold the cards here. We do not. I mean, every Ukrainian that I met in Ukraine didn't want to cede a centimeter of territory. They were so they were so uh, overwhelmingly offended, uh, which is a very soft word to use, by what the Russians did. Uh, in invading their country and murdering their civilians and bombing their cities. I mean, one, it's one astonishing ar- that people think this. One argument that you heard a lot at, uh, before the outbreak of the war and in the first days 
analogy would, would, would be made of, well, what would America think if Mexico joined, you know, a military alliance with China or whatever, or with Russia? Like we'd be mad about things. Well, okay, that's a, we've talked about that analogy in a prior episode. Um, and but, why it makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, in, in why it, it really makes no sense uh, at all. Uh, but um, it's weird that we got tired of analogy making after a couple of weeks because here's one. What would it be like if Mexico or Canada, you know, suddenly was bigger than than it is and just started sending missiles and tanks and superior weaponry to murder civilians um, and shoot people in the back of the head and dump them into the street or whatever? Um, it's like certainly thousands, probably tens of thousands at this point, but we don't know yet. Um, deliberately targeting civilians in America. What would we expect America's response. Would we be saying like, I wish, you know, come on, America is just trying to provoke World War Three by sticking it out and trying to get the world on their side. Um, mm -hmm. No, what we would do as human beings in our own country, seeing our own people get killed, we would probably spend the rest of our lives dedicated on revenge. Yes. That's that's honestly what we would do, yeah. I think. Um, because that's pretty normal. This is Red I, Dawn times a thousand. <laughs> uh, uh, to to sort of impose upon Zelensky and Ukrainians right now of like oh, you're just you're trying to extend this. <laughs> that's not where the sympathy game plays here. Um, this this was entirely an unprovoked, inexcusable, bloody, horrifying war, and it's it's going to be a good deal worse um, than, uh, or it's going to be revealed to be worse than we know so far. And there's just no way around it. At least wouldn't Yugoslavia. And they're not trying to extend it, by the way. They're trying to win it. Trying to win no, it. That's, Get yeah. the fuck out of my country. Um, at least when Yugoslavia um, and people were con contriving apologetics and uh, and making stuff up about things that didn't happen under Milosevic, at least there was the mental exercise of, well, um, Yugoslavia is disintegrating and we shouldn't take sides in a civil war. Um, yeah. Okay, that's an argument. Um, and there are certainly arguments that America shouldn't have gotten involved there or, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, I think America getting involved there ended the Yugoslav civil wars and stopped violence. Um, but it also lowered the bar for interventions going abroad. I think it shouldn't have been NATO. There's a lot of different arguments you can make. And that's all fine. But and they got the involved after after an astonishing massacre a, a of 8,000 8, people. And just like years and years of picking off grandma from the hillside. Um, but, uh, at least the people who were on full apologia mode back then, um, would go into the, well, you know, Yugoslavia should be, should have its own destiny, its own hands. It's not up to us to take sides in a civil war. This right now in 2022 is not sides in a civil war. This is an act of an aggression of a large, well-armed neighbor against a smaller one with which it had and signed up some promises to not invade and not violate its its territory for a long time. So Russia is in violation of its own thing. It's a war criminal. That's just flat out what is happening here. Um, there is no confusion about this. So to, to like wrap yourself in pretzels, trying to make this about America at this moment right now, or to do a, like it, it is really, really hard and it's uh, it's revealing. It's revealing of the character of, of uh, a few And people, if I there think. was a, I mean, America in its foreign wars has done some pretty um, awful things. And 
I mean, there are books, piles of books written about them. I have lots of them on my shelf here. We've discussed a lot of them. Um, Drones this year in places. Yeah. Killing civilians. It's horrible. But, you know, there are, I mean, I imagine, and you think of like the My Lai massacre, uh, which is a, a, you know, a permanent stain on the United States Army. And those were uh, Lieutenant Callie and the, some of the conscripts and I mean, how brutal it was. It was just astonishing. Um, that should never be forgotten. I don't think it has been forgotten. I mean, I wasn't alive during the time and I know of it. And I know a lot of people who weren't alive at the time know about it, but there was a video, uh, that was filmed at the BBC saw. And I think they investigated this of a number of people in Bucha that were, were, uh, tied up, uh, their hands tied behind their backs all found dead in a basement with bullet holes in their head. They were clearly tied up, brought to a basement, and all executed. Um, That is a a war crime that if the American military did that, and, you know, and again, don't, you know, don't stutter step here and say, well, the American military has. No, yes, and, and, and they, we know about it. We know about a lot of them. And... They've been condemned. They've been investigated. They're, they're stains on, on the conscience of, of Americans who care about this stuff and uh, who think about this stuff. And hopefully people in power think about this stuff when they, when they go forward with, you know, uh, foreign entanglements in the future. And we, we hope for a few of those as possible. But the fact that this isn't even really noticed right now, um, few uh, people have been reporting it, but you know, this, this should be something that is in the mind of everybody that there, I mean, we've seen the guy shot on his bicycle, uh, left there on the side of the road, the two, you know, man and his girlfriend shot and murdered the number of cars, which is the interesting thing that a lot of journalists have been reporting coming into the town that are on the side of the road. Like they appear to have careened off the road into the woods, have bullet holes in them. Some of them are crushed, uh, crushed by tanks or, or armored vehicles of some kind, uh, people that have been found buried in backyards, uh, you know, legs coming out of the, I mean, they're very, very hastily done. This is a real, I mean, this is one town, a single town. And I'll tell you what, if you're complaining on Twitter about allies of Ukraine selling or giving weapons to them to defend themselves, to repel these barbarians, then... I just don't even want to have a conversation with you. I just don't understand what, you know, you would want to, if your, if your neighbor's house was being, in, was being attacked by home invaders and you could slide them a gun, you know, <laughs> under their door, you would do it. I hope you would. And I am happy that they have been getting some, they don't think they're getting nearly enough, some of the weapons to repel these people. And they have one in the North. And I, you know, all this hesitation, people saying like, well, you know, it's going to be really bad in the East. Of course it is. And Zelensky said, and the Ukrainian government said, get out, leave. If you are a civilian and you are in the Donbass region, get out now because they're winding up for a bigger attack. Um, It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. But it is very important that the capital city and that all of the surrounding suburbs and other cities, like even Kharkiv is, is, is I think free of, of Russian troops at the moment. Um, that's a success. And, you know, General Milley, who said they'll fall in three or four days. Kiev will be taken in three or four days. Um, surprise. I- I'm really happy they didn't. 
Um, and it, it appears as if the, the number of people who are being killed locally are not being killed because they are combatants. Um, they're being killed because they are mayors, because there are people that are in the civilian infrastructure. They're people who once served in the army and they're just being wantonly murdered because mm -hmm. people in wartime situations, particularly ones where the government of the warring party, the invading party is bent on secrecy at home. You have a law that says you can't even mention the war as a war on television or in print. I guess you think you're going to get away with it mm -hmm. because you are going to get away with it. I mean, you think they're going to prosecute you? No. Putin, by doing that, the Russian government, by doing that, is giving you a blank check with impunity. You can do whatever the hell you want. We've seen these columns of people, uh, of Russian vehicles, uh, driving out with, you know, dishwashers and washing machines and setting up like bazaars in Belarus to sell the stuff. There's no, there's no laws and no rules for the Russian army, as we can see as, as they're retreating and, and murdering people. And the final thing I'll say is the people out there that are writing these tweets... You're disgraces. You're disgusting and you're fucking disgraces. Particularly those of you who hang around, not in Ukraine, but in the area, but don't go over there and investigate that yourself and you say, well, we have to wait for an investigation. We, I don't trust what's happening. I'm not trust what I'm getting. Walk over the fucking border, get in a car, go yourself. Because you're a journalist and you've been in the region. Go yourself. Or you can just do media hits and you know, talk about how the propaganda of the thug Zelensky and the rest of it. It's absolutely and utterly disgraceful. So The propaganda anyway. stuff uh, is interesting to watch. There's a couple of follows on Twitter um, who do a lot of translation of Russian media. Like, what, what does the Russian newscast today say? And it's rough stuff. I've been paying a particular attention, not to, even to Russia, but in Hungary, which had an elections on uh, Sunday. Uh, and uh, Viktor Orban, the... Uh, the darling of the Tradcon uh, right in America and the Bete Noir of the European kind of centrist and left um, uh, won very handily in, in re-election. And there's a lot of discussion about the way the Hungarian media has treated the Ukrainian-Russian war um, because for the last 10 uh, – Orban now is the one who's been in power the longest in the EU of any president. Yes. And he's been consolidating his power by – uh, sort of cherry picking the judiciary, um, stacking it with cronies, uh, having the sort of pipeline of EU subsidy money that goes to his family and preferred people. He does this in every institution, uh, the church doesn't matter. Uh, he finds a way to, to do that. He's frequently routinely mischaracterized as a fascist, uh, I think authoritarian. Uh, we might have an argument one way or the other. He has that leaning. He's very proudly, and, and this is why Rod Dreher and, and company love him so much, is that he loves to talk, describe himself as an illiberal uh, Democrat or an anti-liberal Democrat. That's what he's trying to create, an illiberal democracy in Hungary. But a big piece of that is the way um, he and people around him have control of the media. And I've been reading uh, quite a few accounts of Hungarian media treatment, and it's very, very popular, particularly outside of Budapest. Uh, and again, uh, Hungary has a huge rural uh, 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 capital split, uh, more dramatic than almost any other country in the world. Um, or they, they blame it on Zelensky. The stuff that they're getting from television in particular um, and the media is very conspiratorial. Uh, and it's also very um, uh, discussing of the Hungarian minority who lives in Western Ukraine. There's a, 
Um, uh, Orban gave a speech on election night, which was, you know, typical Orban kind of disturbing and dumb. And uh, it's like, you know, this can be seen from the moon, what we've done here today, because it was a, an election that was supposed to be a little bit closer than it was. And it, and it turned out not to be. Um, and, you know, the people, uh, EU leaders hate his guts and they've been trying to thumb every scale possible to thwart him. So you can understand why he's feeling triumphant. Um, but uh, uh, one, then he goes and says, you know, it, everyone tried to be against us. It was Soros, George Soros. It was the left. It was, you know, the the perverts. I don't know if he said exactly perverts. And it was Zelensky. He name checked him. He was one of like uh, uh, six people um, uh, to be named in this. Uh, and, and so everyone reported on that little bit of the speech because it's kind of weird when you're like uh, triumphing over Zelensky in a democratic election and being proud of it. But the weirder thing that he said that didn't get much play at all was uh, he gave a message, small speech, to all of you uh, in Western Ukraine, our citizens, because Hungary, you know, after the tr Treaty of Trianon ending the World War, ending World War One, there were five million of the ten million Hungarians who were outside of the borders of Hungary. It's been a big nationalism question there; it, like informs everything that they've done. Uh, you see all these flags of. Uh, around or that's basically the Trianon flag, which has a giant hole in it. Um, this is this terrible wound in the psyche of Hungarians. Uh, what he did 10 years ago, which is the most single, most destabilizing thing that he has done far more than most everything that people get mad at him for, is that he gave all of those people the right to vote and citizenship. So the Hungarians in Slovakia, the Hungarians in Serbia and the Vojvodina region, Hungarians in Ukraine. Um, and so Ukrainians believe that there's a little irredentism, a little revanchism uh, in the blood there. He said in the speech, your motherland has your back, Hungarians in Ukraine uh, right now. That's some that's some fucked up shit. That is not a good part of the world for leaders in one country to be saying to their ethnic co-people in the other country, some of whom have never lived inside of Hungary. Most of whom have never lived inside Hungary, yet they can vote. They live in Serbia. They can vote for the election in Hungary. He's talking motherland shit with them after winning election. Uh, it's very disturbing. But the point I wanted to make just in winding it all up is the um, the way that his and Fidesz, his political party, uh, manipulated the media, um, both for his election, put the thumb on that scale, but in the way that they depicted the fight itself, where... Yeah, maybe Russia has a point and maybe Zelensky is trying to bait the the West into creating World War Three. Um, propaganda can work in states that have really tight control over the media and Hungary, sadly. And I was at the dawn of the creation of the stupid media law that they have now, um, sadly, um, has a, an anti-liberal press situation that allows that for that to happen. It's really hard under those circumstances to reach those people and those voters with messages of what's actually going on, even in the country right next to you. Uh, one final thing is that the uh, place I was thinking of uh, that you should pay attention to, which is going to be um, like Irpin and like all these other places outside of Kiev, uh, of Kiev, Kiev um, Northwest is uh, Borodyanka which has been a city that has been liberated and has been totally destroyed. And you're seeing very, very um, similar things to what's coming out of Bucha now is uh, from Borodyanka. Uh, sorry, Borodyanka. That's <laughs> my Ukrainian isn't very good. 
but uh, but yeah, also horrible images. Um, and and if you can uh, check out the drone footage uh, of the of it is, it, it, I mean, it, it honestly looks like Berlin in 1945 on a very small scale, but it's it's crazy to watch. But yeah. All that said, I think it wasn't a good idea for the fucking Boston Marathon. Did you see this? They what? banned hmm? uh, uh, runners uh, from Russia and Belarus unless they don't oh. live in Russia and Belarus. And they oh, also they ba- they and also banned day. them, banned anyone from flying uh, Russian and Belarusian colors. No flags. No flags. Huh. I don't know about the T-shirts. Probably no T-shirts either. And they're huh. like, you know. Russian Belarus suck so and we're from Boston yeah that's stupid it's, yeah. So gonna, it's stupid it's stupid. I mean I mean you can, there's a million countries that could fall I mean <laughs> you know Congo <laughs> North still Korea that flag. yeah Saudi flag. I mean China China yeah I mean ridiculous like I, I wish people would take the politics out of all of these activities and sports and corporations and, and, you know, musical events and cultural events and just leave them in the realm of politics. Unless, unless it's somehow directly, directly affected. Are you telling them to shut up and sing, to shut up and run one hand? (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Or shut up and, you know, administrate rather than run whoever the fuck is responsible for these idiotic things of, you know, canceling Tolstoy or whatever, just ridiculous stuff, you know? I'm not. I'm not of the of the side of people who says you know everybody in Russia is complicit, because I mean a lot of people say this. A lot of I've seen a lot of people that are that should know better, uh, saying that everybody in Russia is complicit with Putin. If you're not resisting, uh, this oh, I can't remember who this was. I think it was the New Yorker writer that said if you're not resisting, then you're you're um, collaborating. It, it's like no, no, that's not how it works. Stop. Sorry. Sorry. Stop violence is violence. I mean yeah. that's cr- kind of crazy. Like. You just you're saying if you're not Navalny and you're not in jail, then um, you're mm-hmm. a coll- collaborator. And that's a level of of commitment that people in our own soft, free liberal democracies would never. We we would we rise to that challenge. I mean, the three of us would, but like would would everyone rise to that challenge? I don't think so. Like if you haven't been in, in a totalitarian country, um, or even its uh, recent aftermath. The choices that that puts everybody through are so horrible and so comprehensive and so all of the time that to to assume morality of people who are living there when you are not um, is that's the cultural imperialism. Stop that. It's fucking stupid. And it also it, it, it's, you know, if you're on Twitter saying these things and find these people because I've seen them um, and harass them and tell them they suck because they don't think, you know, you know, one step ahead which is in totalitarian countries, the first thing that you consider as a dissident is your family, is that leaving means your family is subject to harassment, arrest, committing, you know, acts of violence or, um, you know, sabotage. I mean, this look, this happened to Lenin. I mean, Lenin's brother uh, uh, was, uh, you know, tried to kill uh, Alexander II. Who was the Alexander? I'm trying to remember, but it was, it was, a, was a terrorist. And it, it came down hard on the family and the family was all punished for it. Um, and then, of course, Lenin did the same thing to all of his opponents. But this is something you have to think of, is that, that, that you know, people standing up is rare. Heroism is rare. And one of the reasons it is rare, because you um, endanger everybody around you 
um, particularly your family and friends, that you have to understand that and you have to um, make some sort of moral compromise with that. You know, that's, that's, that's how totalitarian regimes work. So anyway. How many tweets has Camille made during this? this? About 40. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was thinking about the, the event at the White House this week. Barack Obama shows back up at the White House and Joe Biden is there and they're celebrating plans to expand on the many successes of the Affordable Care Act. And I'm trying to parse some of the numbers because I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. That's, that's a really <laughs> kind of nice way of saying I was not listening to you. I was listening. Well, I mean, get, again, there's production stuff. stuff happening. It's fine. Um, the, but the, but the question I wanted to, I mean, maybe, um, I'm wondering how much attention you're paying to the affordable care act as a piece of legislation. They kept talking about how this is the most consequential piece of healthcare legislation that's been passed in a long time, which could also just mean you don't pass a lot of healthcare legislation. And it is certainly true that the affordable care act succeeded at cutting the number of Americans who don't have um, health insurance, reducing that number in, in some meaningful ways. But actually getting people to obtain insurance was one goal of the Affordable Care Act. The other was to control and contain pricing. And there were all sorts of mechanisms that were supposed to achieve that. And it seems like virtually all of that stuff failed. We're still seeing insurance pre premiums rise. We're still seeing the cost of care rise. But we're also seeing healthy people opting out of the system. And it, it seems as though this is a, a somewhat marginal change. And a lot of the folks who have managed to get coverage now manage to get it through like a Medicaid expansion. I mean, I suppose that's a kind of success, but it doesn't really seem like the kind of thing that you celebrate years later. I mean, think of the Democratic presidential primary in 2020. Obamacare was, if it was talked about at all, it was as we all understand that that was a failure. And so we have to do this, you know, expand uh, uh, Medicare down to age 55 or whatever it was. So there was a big out competing one another for having an ever more elaborate and totally impossible to finance system, whether it was Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden himself. And a lot of the fights in the process with the Joe Biden was like, well, we'll expand it by this ungodly number. But that was seen as moderate compared to the triple ungodly numbers that uh, Bernie and uh, and Liz were coming up with. Yeah, it doesn't there is there isn't any kind of love uh, sitting around uh, that's accumulated uh, uh, for this over the years, uh, which is interesting. I, I think part of it goes to the fatal two fatal flaws of it. One is the just the basic structural thing. Everybody and I'm not uh, over stating this really or by that much, most people who look at the healthcare system say, oh, you got a problem here because you tied healthcare to or health insurance to employment as a mm -hmm. World War II era artifact um, mm -hmm. because you had wage uh, uh, controls and it was a way to get yeah, around wage that. And, price controls, yeah. and if you decoupled that, then the new thing would be better no matter what it was. And that was mm -hmm. like, that was the big thing that they decided immediately not to do. And it's a reform that people on the left and right uh, have different ideas about what you do afterwards, but they all agree that that's like the, the, the original sin of the healthcare system taken off the table at the beginning of Obamacare negotiations. So that's a problem. But then the next important one is that the achievement of it 
to get health insurance for people who couldn't get it before. And I was one of those people. When I came back to this country in 98, I tried like hell for two years to get health insurance and I couldn't. It was infuriating. I was just getting rejected right and left. And this is back when I was healthy. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. And my mom had been a director of nursing at Kaiser Hospital. I've been in Kaiser my whole life. And they're like, no, go screw yourself. I get totally that sense of dread and, and also pushes you uh, into getting a full-time job when maybe that's not the best thing for you to do otherwise. But- it, that's what matters. So Obamacare Affordable Care Act was good on getting people health insurance who weren't able to get it before. And if it had focused on that and said, that's mm -hmm. the goal, right? Mm -hmm. And in, in mm -hmm. the selling of it at the beginning, that was the thing. For 10 years, 20 years, either universal health insurance was more the Teddy Kennedy idea or more like th that number is too big. You know, throughout the course of a given year, I think back then, 40 million people would at some point be uninsured. Let's get that number down to a, a minuscule amount. That is a decent goal for public policy in healthcare. We have a weird, screwed up healthcare system that in many ways is more bureaucratic and less efficient than the French socialist system, or certainly the Swiss semi-socialist, semi-private system. But they couldn't Pico. stop it there. They're like, okay, well, now that we're doing it, then we've got to control costs, then we've got to do this, we've got to create this like Frankenstein monster here um, written at every step by lobbyists who you are otherwise, or the healthcare and insurance industries who you're otherwise demonizing in every speech. Um, you know, we've battled a victory over, over, uh, you know, the, the insurance companies like, no, you didn't dude. They wrote the bill. They seriously wrote the bill. Tim Carney was great on this for a long time, talking about how much more, um, the pro side spent in lobbying for the bill than the anti side. And it was all insurance companies. Um, they added all this other stuff and all the other stuff made mm -hmm. it unwieldy and unlovable um, and made everyone forget what we were doing here in the first place. And then the exchanges came out. So, I mean, I think it's kind of turned invisible in American mm -hmm. political life. And I think you just need an excuse to get Obama in the White House <laughs> at all for anything <laughs> because people still like him. They like Michelle a whole lot and buy all of her books. Um, and I don't I don't think that there's really any lasting politics of this stuff. Uh, if anything, like the apolitical lesson to have learned about that system was that it was really one of Obama's worst moments um, in the way that he serially misrepresented both what he was doing, what it accomplished, and especially what the people if you who like your were, plan, you can keep it. Uh, who were against he mentioned it. that today, by the way. Mm. Um, and he was speaking to Jeff Goldberg, editor of The Atlantic at The Atlantic's misinformation uh, conference in Chicago. Jesus Christ. And uh, <laughs> he said at one point, you know, the misinformation, and it wasn't just Fox News, was people would repeat this lie that, you know, that you couldn't keep your doctor or, you know, your plan or whatever if you wanted to. Um, and he repeated that today as a bit of misinformation. Um, I mean, that was, I just that, read the account of this. I'm, I got to get the exact, that quote, was, but, uh, that was, uh, held up, uh, by one of the, uh, PolitiFact type of groups as the lie of the year, uh, yeah. in, in the, a couple of years afterwards. No, like that you can keep your doctor. Like they said, Obama lied the first year. It was like, Oh, Sarah Palin said death panels on Facebook. That's the lie of the year. Uh, even though she wasn't in power anymore. So people were definitely tilting in the Obama direction. But at some point, it became clear that you can keep your doctor with bullshit. And, you, you know, incidentally, that you're going to doctor. Yeah. Incidentally, that you're going to save uh, on average four thousand dollars for every family or every household. Yeah, not true. Uh, totally not true. Totally like, yeah. made up. 
Um, and, you know, he would say he gave a joint speech in front of Congress in 2009, I believe it was. I remember this because Joan Walsh called me a racist uh, about my uh, uh, dis discussion of it. He said, for those of you who are going to tell us misinformation, we will call you out. Mm. And everyone's like, yeah. And like everyone in the press, like the, the journalists in a room cheering. And they're so excited <laughs> that finally we have a president who will call out misinformation. It's like, yeah, that's great. Did you hear the speech? Disinfo <laughs> 2022 hashtag with um uh from Ozzy well it just says at Ozzy but Ozzy, Ozzy Pebar is that his name the reporter um quote many mainstream reporters not just Fox News said look he lied Obama re the you can keep your doctor under Obamacare so apparently he uh, referred to that as disinformation uh, today so it shows you in a way I mean it's perfect it shows you the the difficulty. Um, in, you know, even having a concept like disinformation where, you know, you know, normally liberal, I mean, that's Obama saying there is like not even just conservatives were saying this. And, you know, as you say, PolitiFact lie of the year. And now that is going to be recast as disinformation. Um, you know, there's nothing that's weaponized more than the word disinformation, uh, much more than disinformation itself. Right. You just call everything that you don't like or you disagree with um, or wounded you politically in the long run as disinformation. And that is not, quote unquote, disinformation. Two related or at least maybe two somewhat ancillary things about this particular event at the White House is there are no masks present. You've got Barack Obama and the vice president and the now president on stage None of them wearing masks. The photo ops at the end of the event where a bunch of policymakers come up and Joe Biden sits behind the desk and tries to sign his name, but kind of forgets how to use a pen and then starts like spinning around afterwards aimlessly, which is the weirdest <laughs> thing. He, he kind of turns his back. There's no one there. He looks a little shocked and surprised. He, he, he looks as though he does not know where he is. And then he's like touching Barack while Barack is talking to someone else. It's very strange, very strange looking situation. But no one is wearing any masks. Um, and it, it struck me that, that there are two places where lots of people are wearing masks and COVID is still kind of a big deal, or at least not lots of people. I guess New Brooklyn. York has, has a mandate for young children. Uh, like preschoolers and such to wear masks, which that seems like a lot yep. of fun. And China, the city of Shanghai is on lockdown again. There are spikes in COVID cases, and these are supposedly among the largest reported spikes. The numbers before are somewhat dubious, I should say. But China is in a very weird situation, whereas the rest of the world seems to be ratcheting down their concern and hysteria related to, to COVID. China, on the other hand, is ratcheting in the opposite direction for a number of reasons. But chief among them is the commitment of the leadership in China to a COVID zero policy and an inability to admit that this COVID zero policy is a huge fucking mistake. So rather than unwind this policy they've doubled down and there are reports of severe unrest in various parts of china and i'm not certain how consequential that will be in the long run any unrest in china is good unrest yeah i'd, I'd say the same <clears throat> although it's unfortunate if you are a citizen of shanghai and you find yourself locked down in your home unable to get water and groceries um, and a drone flies into your window and says, go back inside. You know, <laughs> I'm Didn't amazed. you send that video? Was that you that sent that video? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm amazed that their vaccination rates uh, ended up being so low. Yeah. Right? 
Like you think nobody wanted that fucking Chinese vaccine. Well, it was also like dishwater and like pangolin juice. I was also reading though that they had a very a very different approach to vaccination, where they were focused on people who were like working on the borders and who were likely to come into contact with large groups of people, as opposed to prioritizing vaccinations for the most vulnerable populations, black people. I'm, I'm sorry, elderly people in China. Um, <laughs> it just comes so automatic. Um, they didn't. They didn't do that sort of priority. So many minorities in China. Um, <laughs> it's about a hundred percent minority. But but they also, as a result of the, the zero COVID policy, were pursuing a strategy that required hospitalization for all manner of people who found themselves infected, or at least like severe quarantines for people who were infected, um, even if they had were asymptomatic. You know, it's it's remarkable to see how this plays out, the utter dysfunction of a totalitarian regime like this and the degree to which that might be our, our best protection um, against them. Um, but again, I'm not well, sure it's, how it much shows you in, to pay into that. Well, in a way is that you, you, there's no point in paying attention to how the Chinese are handling this. And the reason being is that, you know, the American media very slavishly and dutifully reported bullshit numbers from the Chinese government for really two years. Yeah. It was like, you know, and the interesting thing about China is there are zero cases. Back to you. <laughs> it's like, wait, zero? <laughs> the fucking wet markets? Yeah. Didn't it come from there? It's like, yep, they've got none left. And and it's like, there's no point in, you know, even looking at how the zero COVID thing is panning out for them because you have so few kind of independent journalists, people have to leak stuff and that's, you know, risky. And it's just an uneven, um, you know, bit of reporting that you're going to get from it. So why even bother in some sense of paying attention to how they're doing? Because they're never going to tell you how they're doing. Is that this is what I mean, a, a totalitarian society during war is horrible. Totalitarian society during a pandemic is also horrible. You know, I mean, there's you want some reliable information. You have people like the WHO that are just basically stumping for and, and shilling for the Chinese in various ways at the very beginning. And we just have no real information about this stuff. I mean, we're finding out now about what happened during the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, because there's been some people that have been able to get access to some archives and, and publish books uh, that are not allowed to be published in China. Um, and that's, what, 50-odd, 60 years later. I mean, I just have no expectation that we're going to find out anything about how the Chinese have successfully or unsuccessfully handled a pandemic that might have been created in a lab that we won't know about that either until somebody says, you know, when I was in the, 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 the Chinese team that was trying to cover that up, that we actually had information, but none of that stuff is going to exist for a very long time. So I think it's a reminder also that if your uh, uh, muscle memory, if your tool of choice is totalizing uh, burdens placed on the population, so why not? That's what you know. It's <laughs> what you do. Um, mm. Uh, it should maybe give us pause um, uh, here, uh, like where are the places that went closest in the direction of zero COVID? And did they do it out of a sincerely held belief? Did they do this out of a different idea about the science? Or did they do that mostly because that's what they have known how to do? And so they did it again, just about COVID. Um, I can't help but flirt with the that explanation, that you know, sure, we're going to fill in, we're going to pour sand on a skate park in Venice or in, in, in Southern California in April or May 
of 2020. You get bulldozers to pour sand in the skate park. I still can't believe it. It's so incredible. Um, because we are a state or a city or a county that's used to heavy-handed anything. Um, you know, we obviously live, and you referenced it, Camille. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, is asked about this every single place he goes. Thank God, not even as much as should be. But we're masking two-year-olds, three-year-olds, and four-year-olds in every congregate setting in New York City. It's the only place left, I think, in the United States where that's happening. And mm. he's asked about it. He says, why? It's like, we just, we got to we gotta protect our babies. And it's just, we got to get ahead of the science. This new one's coming in. Like, there is no reason. The reason is that because we, we still can't. We have all these emergency orders that are still in the books. Who knows? But... New York is a city and a state where the government is way more accustomed to policing every little thing. I mean, let's not forget that Michael Bloomberg, who looks like a great mayor in retrospect, considering that Bill de Blasio replaced him, but I didn't like Bloomberg at all. Um, you know, he was yammering on about trans fats and, and the size of big gulps and just every goddamn thing. It's just a natural thing for some reason in places like this to assert or try to assert control over your lives in the most minute ways. And that's where the zero COVID policies have happened in America. And the last week or two, this is now off the headlines because so many other things have happened. Uh, and also we're tired of talking about it, but uh, there's been a lot more data coming in about what's happened to kids, uh, mental health, educational attainment and whatnot. Um, and it's, it is just a generational catastrophe. I observe it in the milieu of uh, my oldest daughter um, constantly. And I, uh, as much as, you know, they're all really super annoying uh, and probably should send up, be sent off to boot camp of some sort, um, they have, that generation is so incredibly hosed by all of this. Imagine like you're just smashed and locked down for a year and a half and then told, okay, middle school, that's going to be basically half a year. Good luck after a pandemic um, uh, in a weird city, in a weird place. Everyone's losing their minds. Uh, and it's the sort of compression and coming out and and the quality of education is really, really bad. And this is what happened in polities where they're used to just having the government tell you what to do uh, compared to the rest of America. What did we get out of it? I mean, New York City and, New York and other places have a much higher um, vaccination rate than Mississippi does. Mississippi has been has had a catastrophic record for COVID, mostly because of vaccination. Um, so there are trade offs there. But the vaccination didn't happen, I don't think, because of government here. I think it happened because of culture much more. Um, and man, there's going to be a lot of collateral crap associated with that. So if we look at zero COVID policies, Shanghai bridge tunnel emails sent, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what was traffic problems emails sent i'm gonna get they the all order shitty right. with a shutdown <laughs> uh yeah that's what we should what? reflect on i think but you but uh, but eric adams did did change the policy that would affect uh kyrie irving so it looks like the nets probably will make the playoffs and will be uh i think i think games to be the seventh so. seed in the playoffs uh, more so, important yeah. than children um yeah i said well, i mean I said, obviously i mean who yeah, needs children yeah. you just need yeah. to know no, that kyrie can play and when he's at home um my microphone stand is being propped up by something i just wanted to show you i, I mentioned something about uh finding out <laughs> what happens in china 60 years later uh this book uh the world oh. turned upside down 
uh, which by by Yang Jisheng mm. is uh, a Chinese a book by a Chinese uh, scholar who which is not published in China and was fired from his position at the history journal that he ran uh, in 2015 under official pressure. And this is a book of, about the Cultural Revolution, and it's the first like real accounting from documents that he's pulled um, that we finally getting 60 years later. And I've just started reading it, and it's uh, so far really good. So that is a recommendation for y'all if you like big uh, doorstop books, uh, The World Turned Upside Down, hmm. A History of the Chinese Cultural Revolution it's by finally, Yang Zhisheng. Um... And this, I'm holding up my of... phone so you can see my Kindle. This is uh, the the three body problem, which is also a book by a Chinese author, except it's a science fiction novel. So. The three body problem. <laughs> the three body problem. Yes. Oh, that yeah. sounds like something Jesse Single would write. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's two spirit. Two spirit, yeah. not three yeah. body. Two spirits, three bodies, yeah. five genders. <laughs> the Jesse Single story. I assure you. It is about something more. else. I got to talk to Jesse. I love. I just love giving him a hard time with the podcast because <laughs> um, I haven't seen him in a long time. So yeah, last time I saw him, he showed up in uh, Nancy's apartment with like two other dudes who were equally as awkwardly tall as he is. Because that's the that's the trouble, with Jesse. Could have just taken the tall off that too. <laughs> <laughs> but it sticks out in an apartment, right? It's just like why wow, weird. Last time I saw him, he was uh, he was uh, in a back and forth, a, an aggressive back and forth with Tracy Morgan. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was there for that. Yeah, you were there. Yeah. Let me stick to the jokes. That's what he said. <laughs> when, That's what when, Jesse said. When Jesse, yeah. When, when Jesse said, yeah, it was like, why Jesse are you doing, was doing Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think I gave a detailed account of that of that whole thing. Tracy Morgan was definitely picking on Jesse because because oh. he's a white guy. Oh, hundred percent. He was, he was yeah. just he was enjoying that in my memory, and I know it's a false memory. I imagine him winking at me. Watch, watch what I do, this white motherfucker. Yeah, watch <laughs> he didn't what say I do. That. Yeah, but it, but it felt that way. Felt that. Camille, way. these are gonna be hilarious. <laughs> I love how he says the, the way Tracy Morgan says hilarious is my favorite thing on earth. Hilarious is amazing. Um, he's uh, <laughs> Stallonians. Uh, he is uh, on the Conan O'Brien podcast recently, and he's very funny. And he talks about how he has a because from the Walmart money because he got in you know that accident and he got paid out something like three hundred million, some crazy no way crazy amount from Walmart. Oh my god, you didn't he know he was driving like a super fancy car, but th- th- was it really? Oh no, he got of millions a, of dollars. Oh my god, Walmart paid him so much fucking money, and he got huh. like in a car accident. Like he he was driving a Lamborghini out of a dealership in Midtown, and like somebody hit it. And there was like that was I think that was filmed like he got in some fight with somebody, but yeah, he got like hundreds of millions of dollars, and he keeps on and, and in the the podcast he keeps on talking about my Walmart money. <laughs> 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 you don't get any of that. He's hilarious. Um, yeah, he's very funny. It's been but, speculated uh, that Morgan and other passengers may have settled their case for more than ninety million dollars. That's a lot. Of money. I think that was maybe ninety million for him. Um, cause I think it was, what? I think it was a lot. It was a That's lot. I, think it might, I thought it might've been more than that, but, uh, but yeah, they paid him out pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty big payout. So, I mean, kind of deserved it. I mean, they almost killed him or they didn't, the driver almost killed him. He was very close to, to, mm. to dying in that accident. So, um, and you know what, if you're going to get a hit some, by somebody, make yeah, sure it's this, Walmart, not like Sears or that, something. In that accident as well. Right. Did somebody actually die in it? Yeah. 
Well, all we talked about was Tracy Morgan, so I feel really bad that somebody died, and I didn't even know that. Well, I mean, they're not Tracy Morgan, so there's nobody yeah, lost yeah. to us. I'm know, not sure that Tracy America. Morgan's ever talked about it either, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I've heard about him in, in, wow. in a lot of interviews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I suppose we can retreat. I know, Matt, you're going to be on the road this week. You've got your Reason Weekend festivities. Where, where is that this year? It's in Nashville, Tennessee, which I've never been to. So I'm oh, super. My, my daughter asked me if I would take her to Nashville this week. She asked Why? me that today. We've been listening to Noah Gunderson. It's kind of like folk country music. Noah Gunderson did a lot of the music for Sons of Anarchy, which mm-hmm. is why I know anything about him at all. And I was listening mm. to a couple of the, the songs in the car and he has a song about Nashville. And Leah asked if she could go to Nashville. Who's Jude? <laughs> like, we sure, we'll try, we'll try it in Nashville. Sure. I don't um, know if daddy spent any time there either. Um, but I, I hear I, good I, things about Nashville. It's a great town. I closed out the... Um, a lot of white supremacy the, there? Tons, tons. Great, great Wonderful. Town. You know me, um, <laughs> apologist for white supremacy. So. Uh, no, I, I closed out the Patreon episode that we uh, recorded uh, last night with, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Buck Owens. That's right. Uh, the uh, Tall Dark Stranger, which is mm. a great song, which I uh, have always loved. And then I heard it in uh, the second season, which I will watch more of when we are finished recording this, uh, uh, which the first one was fine. But the second season of the, uh, what is it? The Fabulous Magnificent Gemstones oh, on yeah. HBO uh-huh. is unbelievably good. Yeah. It's really, really What's fine. What's the, the concept? It's the one with John Goodman. They're about a they're a preacher family, oh, okay. um, like a mega mega church family, Soul. and it's it's really really funny. <laughs> I mean, I, the first season I thought was 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 kind of good, but uh, this one's really good. So that's a recommendation. Um. Anyway, it's no winning time. I know you're obsessed with that. Did you get caught no, up? Yeah. Winning time. No. Winning time is a lot of fun. Winning time is a lot of fun. Oh, one final thing about that is that Magic Johnson has been taught was talking about an interview that he did on his short-lived Magic Johnson talk show with Howard Stern, in which Howard Stern did various forms of black scent and said uh, his show was failing because he was like was trying to speak like a white man and he should speak in a bonics instead and then did the voice <laughs> and then uh, and then said and then accused him of having fun getting AIDS. What? Yes. I mean, now, well, wait, wait, wait. I mean... He didn't have fun getting AIDS. Uh, he didn't know way. that he was Howard Stern has remade himself as a bit of a scold. Yeah, and his all of his old fans have abandoned him, and uh, he likes you know accusing people of of uh, uh, being all these things that he was once accused of. But it's it's really funny that I don't think he's commented on this. But Magic Johnson was like, I wanted to punch him in the face. Can Can you get the old video? Is that video? Yeah, can, no, it's on. You, you can. It's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can watch it. It's embedded in oh, all the stories man. about it. Oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm surprised they even let you watch it because it might might be bad for you. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's the stuff that Howard Stern's been running away from for years. Mm-hmm. Years. Well, I mean, like, there's a bunch of blackface stuff, and yeah, somehow mm-hmm. he. We used to have, and I know it's hard to believe, uh, even saying it out loud, but uh, this this very podcast that you're listening to used to be broadcast on Sirius XM. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. Yes, it was. Weekly. It was. It was we were weekly. actually thrown off of Sirius XM because yes. of Matt Welch's potty mouth. 
there it's was, yeah. there is an actual email. There was an exchange like, please, Camille, can you do something about Matt? And I was like, I can't control him. I cannot yeah. control him. And yeah, he just would not stop. There's so many motherfuckers and it just, it just became too much for them to deal with. And it was like, yeah. we're sorry. You know, we already have Howard Stern. We can't also have Matt Welch. Yeah. I mean, what good is satellite radio if you can't <laughs> swear on it? And I was like working for them at the time, too. <laughs> like I, was in the, yeah. I was a periodic employee of Sirius XM. Well, yeah, it was, was, yeah. was a programming issue on their end because they insisted on playing us on the weekend after they ran the Sunday shows. They would play yeah. all of them. <laughs> yeah. rare. And then play and then play like a 60 minute or 45 minute cut down of the fifth column and yeah. it would just be like kind of the best. Of, and I, and we did like, that was in the a way to Jesus try to Christ jamboree. <laughs> Praise be to the Lord. Here is the fifth column. Here is Matt. Well, dropping F bombs. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. yeah all it was about, it was just bad. It was bad programming. All of which is yeah. to say like, uh, they guard the Stern archive closely. Mm. Yes, they do. Yes, they mm. do. They do. But, you know, the, the problem is for them is that Stern used to have very, very, uh, a very, very large number of obsessive fans that um, Baba I can't Bully, remember. Baba they had Bully. like even a name for them, but mm -hmm. uh, they they uh, had a thing like a website where it was just like a huge archive of shows. And so that stuff is out there. It's like the Grateful Dead of of like Black Scent and I wonder how Black his friends Face and feel about strippers. And, yeah. Uh, he doesn't make any of those jokes. Even is Robin enough. still on the show? I mean, I have no yeah, idea so. what's happening there now. Yeah, he is he's Robin made actually himself. hosting the show now. Is that how? Yeah, it works? yeah, yeah. That's the reckoning. That's the reckoning. Yeah, yeah. It's all Robin doing the crude jokes now. No, Howard only does um, interviews with uh, very famous people now. Mm -hmm. Very, very famous people, and then he's like, "I'm such a great interviewer," and. You can think that. Um, I did, I think, for a little bit. And then I realized he did the exact same thing in every interview. Yeah. And uh, it's the like same little sex? ploy. Nothing yeah. is. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the old one. <laughs> You'd do that in blackface. Um, <laughs> they used to have a Klansman all the time, on all the time. Do you remember that guy? No. Did they really? They had a Klans yeah, yeah. A regular <laughs> oh guest God. was a Klansman. I mean, they made fun of him. I mean, Howard's Jewish. Of course they did. Yeah. yeah. And then they did like a Jeopardy with, guy with the Klansman. It was like a clan Jeopardy or something. It was, uh, that, is, that is inherently funny. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. I, can't, I mean, he's I I can't, not way, he's not funny anymore. So uh, yeah, that definitely. Any why uh, why is anything? Oh, then, no, there was a the homeless. Yeah. Homeless Hollywood Squares is what I was thinking. Of <laughs> oh, my God. Um, awesome. Yeah, there is a. There's a but the clan I'm trying to remember the Klansman's name because he was like a regular guest. And uh they I mean they would make fun of him and everything, but he was I guess they would consider that now platforming. Platforming a Klansman. Um Oh, you know what I should what I should have mentioned earlier? I went to a buddy's house this morning. Oh my god, sorry, can I just say Oh no, I want you to just say, no uh, this is just a headline from 2014 and 2014 in Variety. Howard Stern's white supremacist interview suddenly doesn't look so funny. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. That's the prehistory, right? Yeah. There. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Daniel Carver um, was his frequent guest, uh, known for saying, wake up white people. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Now you can do say you know, that from the other direction. Do you know why direction. it's so funny? Do you know why it's so funny? Because these people are so ridiculous. 
Yeah, I mean, that was the <laughs> joke. Not, they weren't taken they're seriously. Not, they're not remotely terrifying. Yeah. Like if, I, it, if I saw an actual Klansman, like, in the street, and he called me some sort of derogatory name, like, after me and everyone else within earshot, like, beat the snot out of him, we would laugh. Yeah. <laughs> like, we would just laugh uncontrollably. Because these people aren't a threat. <laughs> by, the way, <laughs> by the way, he... D- Carver... Uh, was uh, this says like he was apparently unaware that Stern had him on the show to mock his beliefs. At one point, he was he was reviewing movies for the show, oh, no. <laughs> giving films like Beloved and oh, no. Don't Be a Menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. No way. A rating no way. of no one way. to four flaming crosses. <laughs> no, he would not. Is that a real thing? Yeah, one. That is he'd give them one That's flaming funny. cross. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my yeah. god, that's hilarious! I mean, that's that, that actually was, funny. Yeah, I mean, you have all the like they had regular people like Gary the retard and Wendy the retard. Yeah, but that's not uh, that's not funny. That well, they wouldn't. Uh, I'm, I'm still laughing from the other joke. I'm not yeah. laughing at that. that Wendy likes to share her songs. Gary is more interested in pornography. <laughs> oh God, that is so, I can't uh, believe that that. I'm just saying, I'm just reading like Crackhead Bob. I mean, this was the the whack pack. <laughs> Fred the Elephant Boy, High oh Pitch Eric. God. I'm just reading this off of it. And the great Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I know so yeah, that's yeah. That's a little that doesn't and, and George Takei used to be on all the time too. Um, who's now become quite woke himself. So Yeah. Um, a lot of the people in the Stern universe. Well, Howard, have, Howard would always have on like some mainstream people and then ask them questions yeah, about yeah, like yeah, their yeah. genitals and their sex lives. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just remember um, that he asked uh, he asked John Tesh. Do you remember John Tesh? Yeah, sure. Uh, he was the great pianist, pianist uh, slash host host of Entertainment Tonight. Yeah, um, who was married to Connie Selica. He asked uh, him if he had anal sex with her. And it was a very famous clip because John Tesh was like very mad about it. And uh, like, I think he stormed out or something. But yeah, that was what the show used to be. But there's like a whole genre of people on like Reddit who are devoted to hating on Howard Stern Uh, for what for for him being for being a seller. For what he used to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, for yeah. for 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 being a sellout, for no longer for being doing a sellout. What he used to do. No, no, not right. that doing what he used to do. No, it's just like yeah. people who were like, I mean, because his his audience was like a real kind of bridge and tunnel, blue collar, Long Island, New Jersey, outer boroughs kind of thing, and they kind of felt betrayed by the fact that uh, Stern um, kind of abandoned that whole part of the show and became much more interested in in, in hanging around with famous people after yeah. going to to. Sirius XM, like after escaping the yeah. censors. Yes. He, he became, up. he started censoring himself. Yeah. 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 Well, the culture changed a little bit. And I mean, I think Howard Stern knows how to hang on to his money. And it wasn't by bringing back the whack pack. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, anyway. Yeah. All okay. right. Bye. Whatever. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. 